Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz and Susan Javinsky tell us what issues retirees face in 2022. Carol Hadorowitz shows us how to improve your credit score. Amy Arnott shares her rebalancing tips. And Chris Inton discusses cannabis stocks. Let's get started. Here are Susan Jabinski and Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. It's a new year, and Morningstar's Christine Benz thinks that there are three big issues retirees should have on their radars this year. She's here to discuss them. Hi, Christine. Nice to see you. Hi, Susan. Great to see you. So one um, theme that was sort of top of mind for most investors in 2021 was inflation. And you say this is something that retirees should probably keep on their radars again in 2022, right? Absolutely. So we often hear about the spending part of inflation, uh, the effect on our purchasing power. But I do think it's important to look at this from both sides of the ledger. So certainly you want to look at how your spending has changed, how how inflation has affected your spending and potential implications for how much you're withdrawing from your portfolio. So you can't not think about all of that. But I think you also want to think about how well protected you are from rising prices. So in sort of a perfect scenario would be someone who has all of their income that's coming in the form of a pension. Um, And maybe they're a government worker, so it's a nice inflation-adjusted pension. Increasingly rare, but nonetheless, that is a person who's almost perfectly protected from inflationary forces because they're getting a little bit of nudge up in their income. At the opposite extreme would be someone who has all of their investments parked in very safe securities, in CDs, for example. That person is seeing his or her purchasing power be, be gobbled up by inflation. So that person would need to take pains to protect against inflation. Most retirees fall somewhere in the middle where they're deriving some of their income from inflation-protected income sources like Social Security, but they're also withdrawing from their portfolios. And I think that's the part where you can think about making sure that that you are insulated in the portion of your portfolio that you're pulling out to spend. So let's say a retiree does his or her due diligence and and really examines the portfolio and says, yeah, you know what, I might benefit from a little bit more inflation protection. What sort of tools should they be looking at for that? Well, certainly within the safe portion of the portfolio, I would look to Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, I-bonds, which are pretty much a direct hedge against inflation, against unexpected inflation, I I should say. So anyone who has fixed income securities in their portfolio, I think it makes sense to include some Treasury Inflation Protected Securities or I-bonds as a component of that fixed income portfolio. Stocks tend to out-earn inflation over time, so while there are no sort of direct inflation hedge, they nonetheless, over long periods of time, do help protect that portion of our portfolios from inflation. Um, Dividend growth stocks, I think, are arguably particularly attractive in such an environment in that companies that fit this description are growing their dividends, which help you keep pace with inflation over time. But stocks tend to deliver nice long-term protection against inflation. So I would say most retirees, if they're looking at their portfolios today, should check for those two 
key ingredients. And then there are other more sort of specialized ingredients they might look at. Um, commodities would be one category, although my bias is that they're too volatile for most investments. Real estate securities would be another category to consider. Now, another topic that you suggest retirees keep an eye on in 2022 are interest rates. Talk about that. Right. The Federal Reserve has signaled that it plans to pull back on its bond buying program. We've also already seen some rever reverberations in the bond market in anticipation of that. But I would not be at all surprised to see some interest rate related volatility in 2022. I think retirees with bonds in their portfolio or even with interest rate sensitive stocks like utilities, for example, might be prepared for a little bit of volatility in that portion of the portfolio. And I think it's a reminder to make sure that within your fixed income portfolio, match your time horizon to the types of bonds that you're investing in. Long-term bonds tend to be the most rate sensitive. If you have a very short-term time horizon in terms of your spending from your bond portfolio, you'd probably want to shorten up and be in, in a short-term bond fund or even an ultra short-term bond fund. So think about that um, as well. So don't necessarily go and dump bonds, just may perhaps reconsider how your sub-allocations are looking, right? Exactly. And I'm so glad you asked that question, Susan, because I think, you know, there's been hand-wringing about this for a while that inevitably we'll see this increase in interest rates and that will make uh, bond funds bad. And I think the the Thing that people want to remember is that if you hold bonds in your portfolio and bond funds, you're looking to return of principal, not return on principal. So yields are really low today. We do have a little bit of worries over interest rate changes, but bonds do tend to be good ballast in periods of equity market volatility. And I think bonds will continue to fulfill that role. So I absolutely wouldn't throw them overboard. And lastly, Christine, you say that it's important that retirees, but especially new retirees, pay very close attention to their spending and their expected spending in 2022. Let's unpack that a little bit. Right. It's a good news, bad news story. So we'll start with the good news. <laughs> the good news is that portfolio balances are enlarged. The bad news is that given how well the equity market has performed and how elevated equity valuations are today, given how low bond yields are, given the emerging threat of inflation, it suggests that people, if they're taking a fixed real withdrawal from their portfolio, so if they're using a 4% style guideline, that they should set that initial withdrawal pretty low in case a bad market environment materializes early on in their retirement. So our recent research pointed to uh, starting withdrawal of roughly 3.3% for people with balanced portfolios in a 30-year time horizon. But there are some nudges that you can make around the market, uh, around the margin of your plan. If you're a person with a shorter time horizon, so you're someone who's retiring fairly late in life, you could probably take a larger starting withdrawal because your in-retirement time horizon is reduced somewhat. If you're anticipating that your spending in retirement will trend down over your retirement, and, and the data certainly suggests that most retirees do tend to experience a downward slope in their spending, well then you too could take a higher 
withdrawal to start. And then there are a variety of flexible strategies that people could explore. I would urge people to take a look at them. Some of them aren't super invasive and uncomfortable and do tend to, to lift lifetime withdrawals. So I would start there. Um, and if, if someone is just embarking on retirement, I do think that, that planning to be conservative, at least initially, seems like a good plan. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today and giving retirees some ideas of the things to look out for in 2022. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Carol Hodorowitz from Morningstar Inc. discusses tips for your credit score. Having a good credit score pays off. The better it is, the better interest rate you can get on a mortgage loan. That could ultimately save you thousands every year. There are five primary factors that determine your score. Payment history, the amount you owe, length of history, new credit, and types of credit use. Does your score need a little lift? Here are seven tips to boost it. One, fix any errors. Most errors are small, like an incorrect address, and it won't make a huge impact. Try to check your credit report at least once a year. The FTC recommends getting free copies at annualcreditreport.com. Two, always pay on time. This is an obvious one, but a big one. Set up automatic payments to stay on track. Three, don't borrow too much. How much you owe is one of the biggest influences on your credit score. Four, keep your card with the longer history of on-time payments open. Five, remember soft inquiries don't affect your score as much. This includes when you check your own score or if an employer does a background check. Six, have a solid mix. Your credit score is likely to be higher if you responsibly manage several credit types, like a mortgage, a credit card, and an auto loan. Seven, make up for your missteps. Getting a secured credit card, paying your rent on time in full, and having an auto loan are all ways to help build up your credit score. Keep these seven tips in mind to help you establish a solid track record. Next, Amy Arnott from Morningstar Research Services shares her thoughts on rebalancing in the new year. Hi, I'm Susan Chabinski with Morningstar. As investors review their year-end statements, they may be thinking, do I really need to rebalance? Joining me today to answer that question and to share some rebalancing tips is Amy Arnott. Amy's a portfolio strategist with Morningstar. Hi, Amy. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's start out with the basics. What is rebalancing and why are investors encouraged to do it? So rebalancing is the process of looking at your portfolio's major asset classes and how much of the portfolio is um, dedicated to each one. And if those percentages have drifted away from the target level that you originally set or the mix that you think is most appropriate for your time horizon and risk tolerance, um, then making adjustments to bring those allocations back in balance. So let's let's look at, say, a portfolio that was established maybe five years ago. That was um, 40% in U.S. stocks, 20% in international stocks, and the remainder in, in bonds, which is 40% in U.S. bonds. What would that portfolio look like today if it hadn't been rebalanced or touched at all during the past five years? 
So if it had been, you know, if it's been several years since you've rebalanced your portfolio, you're probably going to see the percentage allocations have drifted quite a bit. So with the equity allocation, for example, um, you started out with 60% in the example that you gave. Um, but because the equity market has done so well with gains of 20% or more for four of the past five calendar years, that overall equity percentage would have increased to about 74%. Um, and then um, because the U.S. market has continued to perform better than international markets, you also might find that you're a bit heavy on uh, U.S. stocks relative to international stocks. And then within the U.S. market, um, although value stocks had a brief resurgence last year, uh, growth stocks have generally continued to outperform by a pretty wide margin. So you probably would also find that you're overweight in growth stocks versus value stocks. So the growth side might be a logical place to look if um, you want to reallocate part of those assets to fixed income holdings. So given this, this type of shift that could have happened, Amy, um, are there certain types of investors who rebalancing is more important for? And then, of course, on the flip side, you know, what type of investor might be able to be a little bit less concerned about rebalancing? So if you're approaching retirement age or already in retirement, you probably want to keep a pretty close eye on your, your portfolio allocations and make sure they haven't drifted too far away from the target levels that you have in mind. Um, and the reason behind that is um, what we've called uh, discussed before, which is sequence of returns risk, which is the risk that your portfolio goes down uh, right before you need to start tapping into it for retirement income. Uh, if you're a younger investor, you know, in your in your 20s or 30s, and you have a couple decades um, until retirement you can afford to be a little bit more lax with uh, rebalancing. But again, you probably want to check in every once in a while just to make sure that things haven't gotten too far away from um, what you intended originally, especially if you're someone who um, is risk averse and you know might tend to panic if the market has a downturn. So Amy, what's a good rule of thumb when it comes to how often an investor should rebalance? So we did some research on this last year and found that either quarterly or annual rebalancing um, seemed to have the best results in terms of controlling a portfolio's risk level and downside uh, drawdown risk. Um, another guideline that a lot of people use is looking at a threshold strategy where whenever a major asset class um, moves either 5% higher or lower than your target level, then you use that as a trigger for rebalancing. But really the most important thing isn't the specific strategy for re rebalancing, but just that it's something that you do on a regular basis. And um, you know, paying attention to your portfolio's allocations and adjusting them as needed is something that's going to help control, control volatility and drawdown risk. So for someone who is about to engage in rebalancing, um, you suggest that investors start with their tax-deferred accounts like IRAs and 401ks. 
Why is that? So the tax deferred side is um, really the easiest place to to rebalance because you can buy and sell without having to worry about any tax consequences like realized capital gains. Um, So that's definitely the best place to start with rebalancing. Um, And then if you need to make additional adjustments, you may need to look at taxable accounts, which can be a little bit more tricky um, because you have to may have to deal with um, realizing capital gains and trying to offset those with capital losses. And then you also point out, Amy, that for retirees who are taking required minimum distributions, they can use those RMDs as a tool with rebalancing. How might that work? Exactly. So when you're taking a, retar- a required minimum distribution, Um, This is a withdrawal that you're required to take as a certain percentage of your portfolio each year, depending on your age. Um, But you do have a choice as to which assets you're selling um, to raise cash for that distribution. So it can definitely be a great opportunity to look at areas of your portfolio that are above target and use that as the first place to look when you're taking a required minimum distribution. And then lastly, Amy, you did allude to um, taxable accounts. What role can they play, if any, in that rebalancing process? Um, So, you know, as I mentioned, taxable accounts can also play a role with rebalancing, but it does get a little bit trickier. So one one option um, you one thing you can do is try to look at um, unrealized losses and use that those to offset gains. Or if you're still making contributions to taxable accounts, you can use those kind of steer those new monies into areas that are b- below your allocation target and use that as a way to rebalance as well. Well, Amy, thank you for your time today and for these rebalancing tips. We appreciate it. Sure. Great to be here. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. And lastly, Chris Inton from Morningstar Research Services analyzes cannabis stocks. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Cannabis stocks took it on the chin in 2021. Does that mean there may be opportunities here? Joining me with his perspective is Chris Inton. Chris is a strategist in Morningstar's equity research team. Hi, Chris. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. So after doing pretty well in 2020, cannabis stocks really struggled in 2021 um, with the names we cover ending the year anywhere between 20% to 70% in the red. What happened? First, I'd make a distinction between what happened for American cannabis stocks, which are Cureleaf and Green Thumb, and the Canadian cannabis stocks that we cover, Canopy Growth, Aurora Cannabis, Tilray, and Kronos. Every cannabis stock fell as optimism for federal legalization reached a fever pitch after the Democratic wins in the Senate and the White House early last year. But the drop was much bigger for the Canadians in general, as the cannabis market there has been incredibly hard compared to the robust American market. Oversupply, price competition, and lack of dispensaries are all challenges the Canadian producers faced that Americans didn't. Furthermore, U.S. federal prohibition has kept the Canadians out of the more attractive American market. So, Chris, what do you expect on the legislative front in 2022 and beyond? Uh, We expect more states to advance legalization for medical and recreational cannabis 
and for states that have previously legalized to formally open their recreational markets. On the federal front, we still think it's going to be a year or more until significant progress is made for changes to federal prohibition. So then do you see a catalyst in 2022 that may help these stocks turn around? Sure. First, if we see some firmer progress on federal legalization, we think market worries would alleviate a bit. And second, we think that if cannabis companies could turn in some solid financial results with fewer hiccups that we saw in 2021, like unexpected declines in revenue or margins, that we could see some better stock performance. So, Chris, most of the cannabis stocks that Morningstar covers are undervalued today. There's one exception, which is Aurora Cannabis. We think that one is fairly valued given its extreme uncertainty. Tell us a little bit about why that stock in particular is different from the rest. The American cannabis companies like Careleaf and Green Thumb have been turning in strong financial results, so their trajectory is a lot better. Canada has been a challenging market with oversupply and price competition plaguing producers. And as such, it's been a harder path to profitability there. Tilray, which includes Legacy Afria, has generally been on a path to profitability than its peers, helping deal with that challenging mar- market. Canopy and Cronus have access to deep pockets through investments by Constellation Brands and Altria, respectively, and that's helped them handle those market challenges. Aurora has yet to reach positive EBITDA, nor has it gotten a big check from a strategic investor. So there's been a real risk of value destruction through dilutive equity issuances necessary to keep the lights on. So, Chris, given that many of the cannabis stocks that we cover are undervalued, are there one or two in particular that are sort of the highest on our list today as far as opportunity goes? Yes, we like the American stocks. So we like Cureleaf and Green Thumb. Both U.S. multi-state operators trade in five-star territory, offering meaningful risk-adjusted upside. The market's been overly focused on federal legalization. But in the meantime, both companies have been building large footprints and seeing robust profit growth, even without federal law changes. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your perspective today and for your picks. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.